Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 27. The last show or the last time we met, we started the discussion about subdivisions and government control. We talked about a number of different topical areas during that uh, meeting, if you will. I'm just going back here and taking a look at some of those uh, things. Primarily, we talked about, uh, or one of the areas that we talked about was subdivisions. Uh, the emphasis on that was the fact for you to realize that if you happen to have property that you want to take and take out of one use, such as agricultural land, and want to utilize it to build, for example, houses, subdivisions, condominium units, townhouses, whatever, what you basically have to do is there's two laws, two major laws in California you have to follow. And what we discussed was one of them is called the Subdivision Map Act. And that act is where uh, you actually go out, hire a licensed civil engineering firm that works with this uh, kind of stuff on an everyday basis and has a track record of working with this county or the city where you're located. They also have the expertise of how's the best way to divide the land. What they do then is they go out and they survey the land they make sure that they know where the geographical boundaries are according to the legal description. After they do that, they come back and they create a map. Uh, that map, initially, once they're finished in the preparation, which will show the lots, the dimensions of the lots, the streets, the curbs, the gutters, all that information. Once that's done, they submit that along with a lot of other documentation to the planning department for either the city or the county where the property happens to be located. And then, and once it's approved, it goes through a process called the tentative map approval. Uh, at that point in time, normally what would happen is that planning department would usually come back with some form of maybe recommendations that they would like the developer to fulfill, or in some cases maybe even discuss things like the dedication of certain lands for like fire departments, parks, or whatever. And then it finally goes back through and it gets th approved as a final map later on. And I'm also leaving out a lot of the steps that are necessary here. But the concept is when it's all done by the engineering firm, it's recorded at the county recorder's office and then becomes the legal description of every one of those lots that are in that subdivision or condo unit or whatever. So that's the Subdivision Map Act. And just keep in mind, a map is like a picture. So that's one way you can remember the difference between the two names of these. The other one was the Subdivided Lands Act. We discussed that, and that was the act where, in order to protect the public, there's a requirement that the Department of Real Estate prepare and issue something called a public report. The people that are putting all of that information together or paying for it or working on that process is very well maybe the developer or some of their uh, consultants that they work with. The public report comes out. There's two versions of the public report. There's a pink report and an, under a pink report. And the purpose of it being pink is so that you just go, wow, what, what is, I've been signing all these documents. They're white in color. Where did this pink document come from? And that's what it's supposed to do, kind of put you on notice. And what that does is it allows you and tells you about, in very general terms, about the community what kinds of fire services it may have, schools, if there's going to be a homeowners association, all those kinds of things. It's tentative. That's what the pink means. It, once a developer receives that, they can then therefore take something called 
reservations from we as the public. And uh, those reservations are more or less to hold on and put your down payment and hold on to the property. In the meantime, that the process will continue along, and the final thing that will come out will be a white report called the formal public report. That public report, once it's final, that means that they can take, you know, anytime prior to that, you can get your money back. Now you're actually where you've put your money down, you've made your decision, you've read it, and you're going to agree and go forward and either build or buy a proper, uh, a home in that area. That public report is required to be read by the person that is buying the property, and they are supposed to sign a document. That's supposed to. They must sign a document stating that they have read and understand the public report. So that's a very important document for you to know and understand how that works. So we spent a lot of time talking about the public report and the Subdivision Map Act and the purpose of that report. Uh, what we wanted to do then from that point, and I'm just looking at where I am, is we finished off by talking about a couple other. We were discussing different types of ownerships. We talked about a common interest development, and the purpose of a common interest development meant that we owned possibly our own individual units or had some kind of a leasehold interest on those individual units, but then we had a common area. And then there's also something called an association of owners that control, manage, and, uh, if you will, uh, make sure that the rules are followed or the administration rules are followed. We talked about a common interest development, which was basically maybe we had single-family homes and we had an area in which people commonly had an ownership interest. It could be a park. It could be um, a playground. It could be a clubhouse. It could be something like that, but we owned our own land. We talked about a planned unit development in which we possibly would have a, um, if you will, we had an, uh, a homeowners association, and again we had a, a, uh, an undivided interest in these in the uh, portions of the uh, common areas. We talked about a community pro- apartment projects, which is another type of ownership, and that is witnessed by the fact that you uh, just to pull this up and make sure that we're. On track with this, let me just pull this up here for a second. And just so that we make sure we're in the right place, the community apartments, and I'll just read really quickly what this is. Uh, Community apartment are two or more apartments defined as a subdivision where the operation, maintenance, and and control is usually exercised by a governing board elected by owners of the fractional interest, an owner receives an undivided interest in the land together with an exclusive leasehold right to occupy a unit. Now, why this is important for you as a, um, possibly as a, either a purchaser or as a uh, real estate professional within the industry is to realize when you go out, as I mentioned last time, and look at something, and it looks like it's a condominium, you probably are going to want to check everything to make sure that you're not talking about something as we were talking about here, a community apartment project versus is it a condominium? You know, what kind of ownership interest is it that I'm actually listing and selling? Or if I'm buying, what kind of, what kind of ownership interest am I purchasing? So it's very, very important because I have seen in the past where people have bought these types of properties and then later on had have had a difficulty obtaining financing on them. And in one particular case, there was a project down in the Sausalito area down near San Francisco 
in which the owners of all the properties in, the, in, in this uh, project had to get together, hire an engineer, go out, have the property properly divided into condominium units. Suffice it to say, there was a lot of work, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, expense that they had to bear in order to get the issue corrected because they were having a difficult time getting lenders to lend money on those projects. So that's why I wanted to let you know you need to know or understand the differences between them. And then, uh, let me see. So we had that and then we talked about a stock cooperative was another one. And under a stock cooperative, what's interesting is that it's a corporation that is formed to own the land and improved real property. Stock cooperative uh, either owns or leases the property. And most people don't realize you can have long-term leases where you do build, uh, you know, say, for example, apartments or condos on them. The buyer does not receive a grant deed but owns a share in the corporation and the right to occupy a certain unit. Okay, so it's a different kind of ownership that you need to be aware of when, again, when you're purchasing or you're uh, helping somebody buy a piece of property so you understand the differences in the legal, the legal types of ownership you may have and how, what kind of an effect it can have on current future ownership and also on financing and also the appraised value of it, too. So after that, we basically talked, if I can go through here, we talked a little bit about something called time-sharing. Uh, mainly where you see time sharing today, and it has been traditionally for years, is in the area where people are looking to purchase a, uh, like a condo or a townhouse of some sort in normally a area where people will go on vacation. So it usually will be in an area like a Lake Tahoe, a Las Vegas, uh, possibly in Hawaii or in other countries, what happens is is that instead of you owning that ownership for the whole entire year, you're going to buy certain weeks. So, for example, maybe the people that are selling it may turn around and say, you know, you know what, during Christmas, this area is very popular and a lot of people come here on vacation. So the two weeks that are right around Christmas are going to cost, just as a figure, that will cost a buyer $20,000 to buy that right. But maybe right after Christmas is over and right after the first of the year, maybe the vacation time slows down and maybe that two weeks might be worth not 20, but might be worth 15,000. So they price them out based on how popular, you know, not only the amenities, but how popular they are during certain times of the year. For example, certain areas, uh, uh, you know, during the year may become extremely hot. If they're in a very hot area where a lot of people don't go there on vacation, maybe that area tends to attract people during the Christmas time. So, so in other words, that's how they're going to differentiate the price on those. Uh, anyway, so that's a timeshare. So we discussed that, and I'm just trying to catch up here on where we are. Um, the next thing that we wanted to do was talk about something called environmental laws. Okay, that's the next category, if you will. So... Environmental laws are really set up to protect us as consumers. And what I'm going to do is just state out or read out a little bit about what's in the book here, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. It says, in recent years, there has been an increasing attention focused on the problems of our environment. These problems include energy, water pollution, air pollution, population growth, preservation of wildlife, 
waste disposal, and quality of life in general. In response, the federal, state, and local governments have passed laws that have made regulations to help protect us and our environment. It goes on from there and it says an environmental impact report is a study of how the subdivision will affect the ecological, ecology, and subdivision surroundings. An EIR may be required by either the city or the county authorities prior to the approval of a subdivision map. But some projects may be exempt. In rare cases, the responsibility for the preparation of the EIR will belong to the Department of Real Estate. Now, and then it goes on from there, one more statement. It says, the negative declaration is a statement by an expert affirming that a new subdivision will have no negative impact on the environment. Now, just to give you some sort of perspective, and I think I mentioned this the last time, you know, when I first came to California and I went to Los Angeles, probably back in about the early 70s, I can remember that Los Angeles, the smog was absolutely terrible. You couldn't see more than a few hundred feet. Uh, you'd walk out in the morning and there was all this soot all over your car. Now, it, now when you go down there today, you find out that there's not the pollution that there was, you know, uh, 20, 25, 30 years ago. Why is that? It's because California has passed laws to say, for example, cars uh, have, have to have emission controls. They can't go down the street and be smoking the place up, you know, where uh, I can remember myself even having a car that looked more like a crop duster going down the street with all the oil that had burned. So we've had laws to stop that from happening. Uh, we've had a number of other laws when you read about it in the paper, like, for example, if you're putting in a subdivision and it happens to be in an area where you're going to affect the ecology. It could be something as far as the fish. It could be the the birds. It could be a lot of different animals that are indigenous to that area. If it's going to affect those, those uh, species of animals, then they're going to say, we don't really want to put that subdivision there. So just suffice it to say that one of the things that you may very well run into in the development of land is is where the county or the city is going to look at all of the factors that are going to affect you putting that subdivision there, such as traffic. Are you going to be creating more traffic, which we are in Sacramento as we speak today? Are we going to be creating more pollution? Is there enough uh, uh, circulation? Uh, is there enough public transportation in the area? I can think back as another thing, too, when we take a look at, uh, for those of us that have either been fortunate or unfortunate enough to go to something called the garbage dumps, I can remember a number of years ago when you went there and they would take and let you dump anything and it was nothing but a great big hole in the ground and you name it went in there. Everything from car batteries to oil to dead animals to garbage, everything went in there. We can't do that anymore. Anymore if you go to the place we commonly refer to as the dumps, first of all, it's not a dump. It doesn't stay there. It's a station that recycles things. So you see them separating out cardboard, aluminum cans, Metal, uh, you, you, you know, if you go in there, there's people at the gate that will tell you you can't mix together the, uh, the leaves and the, and the metal. They have to be separated. And uh, if you're going to bring in computers, you just don't throw them in the landfill. What you have to do is you have to actually, in many cases, pay a, f a fee to dispose of it correctly. So anyway, we have a lot of environmental laws that have been passed to protect us. And if you ever want to have a feeling of what it's like not having those environmental laws, all you have to do is go to some of our third world countries. 
or even some countries that are coming along being very popular, countries like Thailand, where you go to Bangkok, Thailand, and the smog is just terrible. You go to China, and it's very hard to see. Your eyes burn. You can feel, you know, you can feel your uh, lungs getting heavier or whatever. So the point is, is that we have these laws to protect our health, and not only our health today, but the health and the future of our of our children and our grandchildren. And California has been a leader in that area, just so that you understand what we're talking about that. Uh, so anyway, after the environmental laws, the next thing that they talk about in some cases is uh, disclosure of, uh, and this falls under California laws, disclosure of lead-based paint. We happen to have had at the uh, internship class, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we had a speaker come in that is somebody that actually does these tests for lead-based paint. And basically what we're talking about is houses that were, the purpose of the letter, at least according to this gentleman, was that it helped the paint adhere better to the surface. The lead-based paint was very smooth. It went on very smooth. Uh, it lasted a long period of time. The problem with it was that if, if the paint was ingested by children, specifically by children more than adults, but by children, it doesn't kill them, but what it does is it can do things that will affect their deve developmental growth. In other words, it can cause some kind of damage to the, uh, to the uh, brain and maybe uh, cause some form of retardation or some other problem. So consequently, what's happened is, is that if we have, uh, if we believe we have lead-based paint in a house, we have to disclose that. Okay, and it all bases on, I believe, the year that the house was built. I'm going to look to see if they happen to have um, that in here. I'm not sure whether or not they have it in this particular document or not. Uh, let me look and see here. I'll just read what this says and see if I happen to run across it. It says, the seller or the lesser must provide the buyer or the lessee with a lead hazard information pamphlet, including disclosure form and disclosure Disclose the known presence of any lead-based paint. Okay? And again, it escapes me what year. There was a year in which houses, in which we in California could no longer use that lead-based paint. And from that point on, we don't have a problem with that. It's the years prior to that. And like I said, for the life of me, it just escapes me what that date is. But anyway, it says the CAR Residential Purchase Agreement and Joint Escrow Instructions contains a lead warning statement and a statement to, to be signed by the buyer that the buyer has read the warning statement. Also, CAR has a lead-based paint hazards disclosure acknowledgement in addendum form that can be made a part of the residential purchase agreement. So the point is, I guess what you want to say is that the seller is required to disclose if the property has lead-based paint to the buyer the buyer is responsible for reading this pamphlet so that they understand what they're dealing with and how to possibly take care of the problem. Uh, many times to take care of it, in some cases, it might be where you just put paint over the top of the lead-based paint. The problem is, is when you're doing things where you're trying to, as this gentleman was telling us, where you go in there and you start sanding the paint off, and the kids are standing around, and everything becomes airborne dust, and all that lead's in the air, okay? In fact, he was telling us during that that uh, 
he had bought a house, and I guess he was in that kind of a business, in the environmental business, working for the state, and uh, had a door and decided to go ahead and, you know, sand the door and get it all cleaned off to put some paint on it or to, you know, to stain it. And uh, he's going through and doing the sanding and had his kids there, and, you know, they were helping him out. And what he did is because of his job, the job that he had, required him to go have some blood tests. And when he had the blood test, he realized that he has his level of lead in his body had gone up dramatically. And it was at that time that he realized that, you know, how you get the lead into your system. Okay, and so anyway, if you have that, you have to disclose that. So that's what we're talking about, to protect the children primarily. Um, another thing that we want to mention, too, is that needs to be disclosed is what we call geographical hazard zones, and that typically what we're talking about in that case is we're talking about earthquake zones. Uh, I'll show you hopefully near the end of this uh, end of this. Uh, show, and I'll get to it here in the book, that there's a, there's a picture in the book of the fault activity, but there's an entire website just de dedicated to these studies of where the earthquake zones are. Uh, that's the reason why in a lot of cases in California, when we are building a house, for example, you'll see things that are on the houses here in California that you may or may not see in another state. For example, between the first and the second floor, one of the things that you'll do is you'll have this strapping, this metal strapping that connects the first to the second floor. You'll also have, and with the whole idea of that, and also the idea of having the structure and the siding, is that because in an earthquake what happens is the building moves like this. And what you're trying to do is make it so that the building doesn't move back and forth like this and finally collapse. And so what they'll do is they'll connect the first to the second floor. That's one of the things that they do. Uh, and they'll also make sure, I mean, it really gets fairly technical, like the siding on the side of a house has to have a certain nail pattern so that you make sure that the walls are not going to be moving back and forth like this. You also have to have cross bracing in there to prevent that from happening. That's uh, earthquake zones or knowing where the earthquake zones will tell us that we shouldn't be building in those areas. If we built in those areas, there'd be a high probability of us maybe of the houses falling down, okay? We're in an earthquake zone. So that's the whole concept behind uh, knowing that information. And again, that's another one of the disclosures that you have to make. Uh, it goes on from there. There's a lot of other disclosures you can, uh, you can have. Um, you know, uh, you know, going back to where those are shown, they're shown primarily, uh, as far as those disclosures go, they're in that listing agreement, the residential listing agreement. Uh, you'll see those where the owner is required to disclose if they do have those problems. Also, that's the reason why we have things such as uh, where our water heaters have to be strapped down properly so in the event of an earthquake, they're not going to fall over and cause a fire or, you know, whatever. Okay, the next thing we want to talk about is planning commissions. Most people may not realize that we, in the, you know, whether we're in the city or in accounting, the development that we do, in other words, where we put the shopping center, where we put the uh, apartment houses, where we put the industrial parks, where the uh, right down to the refuge uh, lo uh, 
locations, the cemeteries, all those different places all fit into a plan. And this plan is called a general plan. And that general plan has seven elements. And those elements are going to address things like the location of certain kinds of uses of property. It's going to talk about different types of transportation through the community itself, where the streets, the roads are, what kinds of transportation or car traffic you have going on in there, where the air transportation or the airports come in. So in other words, it looks at the entire community on how it actually operates. And what happens is we create this thing called a general or a master plan. It has two major parts of it. One has a great big map that shows where all the different uses of the property are located. And the second thing is supporting documents that say things like talk about where the transportation is, the highway systems, the railroads, all that kind of stuff. And what I wanted to do is to go through this uh, with you. First of all, to let you know that within either a city or a county, okay, so if you're in Roseville, uh, not Roseville, but I'm sorry, in, El in uh, Elk Grove, you're in a city. So you have a city planning department, a city planning commission. If your property happens to be not in a city, then you fall under the county planning department and pl county planning commission. Okay, anyway, so we'll talk first about the planning commission. It says the primary responsibility of the city and the county planning commission is to prepare and adopt a comprehensive long-term general plan for the physical development of its own jurisdiction. And they're required to have those, by the way, by law. The city and the county or organizations gather information, cite the examples, and come up with their own innovations in an attempt to make some order out of the chaos in the city may, that the city may have fallen into. Commissions have discovered that pre-planning exactly what types of buildings go where before they are constructed saves more time and money than all the zoning laws after, made after the building is done. Such planning commissions make predictions to guarantee that today's residential, commercial, and industrial areas will not collide in the future due to the expansion of both areas. So what we're talking about is that they're trying to sit down and look at the current use of the property today. And they're trying to say, you know what, we can only move, for example, build houses into this certain area. If we go beyond that, we're going to be too close to the industrial area. They may set aside buffer zones. You know, so that noise, we have, you know, in an industrial area, we can have noise pollution, we can have air pollution, we can have a lot of things going on. But to separate the residential, we may very well have buffer zones. We may also be looking at how are we going to get, tra if we have an industrial area, how are we going to get products in and how are we going to get manufactured products back out again? So we may be looking at do we have a railroad near there, what we call a railroad spur? Do we have a great highway system? Do we have a, 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 a interstate freeway system that we can truck stuff in and out? So they're, they're going to be deciding all about that. In fact, they're constantly, the county and the city is constantly gathering data. If you go down and you look, if you're driving down the street someday, you may very well look at something that looks like it's a hose laying across the street. That hose happens to be usually connected to a gray box sitting on the side of the road. What that's doing is it's tracking car flow traffic flow. You can go down to the planning department and actually see maps that will show where the traffic is. They're trying to constantly gather this data to figure out should we make the road wider or smaller? Should we build certain things in that area or not? 
this. So they're constantly working on this. It's not a document that just sits there. It's constantly being uh, worked on. The master plan down below, which is the master plan, says the master plan, every city and county must have a planning commission by law. Okay, the primary purpose of the master plan is to set forth the existing and future matters concerning uh, seismic safety districts, streets, and highways. Okay, and going beyond that, it says uh, the entire, entire new cities can be pre-planned so that zoning laws exist only to enforce and execute the city's master plan. Okay, and zoning, we'll talk about that in a minute. The, the uh, master plan is a comprehensive guide through which zoning establishes an ideal plan for the city development in the future. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do. We're saying based on everything we see, which direction should the community be going in for the best use of all the property? And that's the planning or the master plan. And the other thing that we talk about is zoning. And zoning is... Zoning, we use that term loosely, but basically what we're talking about with zoning is we're trying to identify what each individual property can be used for. In other words, we may, first may designate a certain area as, say, commercial use only or manufacturing only or residential only. So we say, first of all, that's what the property can be used for. But in addition to that, what the zoning law will do is tell us things like how high can the buildings be? How many stories can they be? How far from the fence line can they be? Can they, do they have to be set back from the fences by five feet, six feet, seven feet? What is it? How far from the street should the property be located? And if you drive around the community, you'll see some property and you'll go, my goodness, why did they ever build the house that way? It looks like like it's almost bordering directly on the street. Well, it may very well have been before the zoning laws were really in place in the Sacramento area. Okay, so uh, so anyway, the zoning is to make sure that we have uniformity throughout throughout the area, and we're using the land and we're using the property and building the houses so that it best fits the entire community. Okay, so moving on from there, and let me just... Uh, on this chart, and I'm going to blow this up uh, just so you see. I know that you probably can't see this at home, but what I want you to get the gist of is, is that there is every single municipal organization, county or city, has their planning zoning regulations. And what happens is, is that they'll come up with a designation and I'm not sure if you can see here on the left-hand side, these are zoning de designations. So the A means agriculture. The R's mean residential. Okay, so this is all on this side. This side over here will tell us what we can use it for. Okay, this one over here will tell us, um, and I need to get my glasses on here to be able to see this. This will tell us if we have required yards, of how big the yards have to be. This will tell us the minimum area. This will tell us parking spaces. Okay? Now, that, you're going to find out that what will happen is you'll have a general plan and then you're going to have zoning maps that will say how the area is supposed to be used. The concept is you take an area, it's zoned a certain kind, you then turn around and look at this document and it will dictate what you can use the property for. Okay? And so on the front part, they have primarily uses for both agricultural and residential use. 
And on the other page, they have uses for commercial, which is what the C is, commercial. And then you'll go down into here into the residential area. Okay? So, for example, let me see if I can blow this up and get this now that you understand how this works. Okay. And I'll get it a little bit bigger. Keep getting it bigger and bigger. So, for example, C1 is limited commercial use. It's for local retail stores, offices, uh, businesses, hotels, limited hospitals, and or clinics and parking areas. That tells us what that C1 designation means. We can go down to C2, and this is C, um, I'm sorry, C2, or the, the one that's below it, I'm sorry, C1.5, uh, uses department stores, theaters, broadcasting studios, parking buildings, parks, and playgrounds. So the idea here that you should be getting out of this, and I'll go back to the residential so you see the residential, the differences in the residential. And the residential will take something very simple like R1. R1 is used for residential. Okay. So in this particular case, it's telling us that if we see a designation of R1, it can be used for one family dwelling. Okay. One family versus, say, a duplex is two family. So, for example, you could have R1 zoning that would be one family, single family home. R2 would be a two family residential. Okay. Two family residential. Okay. If you go down below here, you'll see, um, you'll see that you have these designations, which are like RD2, RD3, RD4, RD5. Uh, you have RD, let's see if we can get one in here, blow this up even a little bit more possibly. Uh, R3, and this, and this is Los Angeles by the way, R3 is multiple dwellings and it's apartment houses. So, I mean, I, hopefully you get the point that what you're doing is, is that these designations tie back to this document that tells you what the property can be used for. In addition to that, that's just a little bit of the information. You also have manuals and books that will go into great detail about what you can and can't do and setbacks and a lot of other things. That's the concept of the zoning. Okay. And let me zoom back out of this and put this over here. Okay. Now, one of the things that you'll find in zoning that they may very well do is talk about setbacks or talk about what, where you can build. And I'm going to give you, you know, this would be a zoning, they're saying this is a zoning uh, setback problem. Here's the situation. You want to build a house. You know how big the house is that you want to build. You're going to put it on a lot, but you need to know, you know, how big can the side lot be? How big can the back be? How big can the front be? That's what you want to know. So what they're doing is they're giving you an example here. They're saying the building buildable area is the maximum allowable area of the lot that the city or the county allows for building after deducting the setbacks from the front, the back, and the sides. So what you're doing here is you're looking at the lot, going this direction here is 150 feet deep. Going this way right here is 50 feet wide. You'll see here that you have a four-foot four setback 
here, that means between the fence line and the building. You have another setback here that's four feet from here to the fence line. Same thing from here to the fence line. In the front, you have a 20-foot setback between here and here. That will dictate, if you calculate the setbacks, that's going to dictate how big the footprint is going to be for that house. That's what's going to dictate how big it'll be. So it gives you a final dimension down the bottom. It says, well, how big is this going to be? Well, if the width, the width is 50 feet. Okay, four feet from both the left and the right. So you have 50 feet minus eight feet. So that means the, the largest buildable area here, you can have from here to here, the largest that that can be will be a total of 42 feet. That's the largest you can be after you take away the setbacks. The other way, you have a, a lot that's 150 feet this way. You take away the 20-foot front setback and the four-foot rear setback, you take that away, that gives you 126 buildable lengths. So your, your lot now is four, or your house can be no bigger than 42 by 126 feet. That's as big as the house can be. Now, if you want to have one that's bigger, what you may have to do is go to a second floor. Okay, now then before you go to a second floor, you're probably going to have to check the zoning regulations to make sure you can go and build a second floor. There may be a restriction. They may say you can only go one-story homes in that area. And there might be a lot of reasons why you can. It might be that you're, you're, you're obscuring the view of another home. You're doing something else, but you want to check that. Um, so anyway, when you do the math down below, it tells you that the biggest the house can be would be 42 by 126 feet. You do the math, and it's 5,292 square feet. That's the total. Part of that could be a garage or whatever, but that is big as, as the house can possibly be. Okay, so it's like get the lot, find out what the setbacks are, draw the setbacks in, then that what's left is going to be where you can build the house. Okay. All right. The next thing that you probably are going to hear about that a lot of people get confused about is what happens if your property does not meet the zoning rules and regulations. What happens? Okay. There's two things that you can work with that are, are well-known. One is called a variance, and the other one is called a conditional use permit. Okay, A variance and a conditional use permit. The purpose of the variance means that your property varies dramatically from whatever the zoning requirement is. In other words, the zoning requirement says one thing, and your property is 180 degrees the other way. And a variance is not necessarily just given out. Usually what happens is you receive a variance because you're ending up in that situation because the government has put you there. As an example, that lot that they just spoke about, that had a setback of 20 feet from the front. If all of a sudden you bought that lot and then the city came in and made the street wider, which took away from the front of that lot, say, maybe five feet. So now you don't have a front yard of 20 feet. You have a front yard of 15 feet. You did not cause the problem. The county caused the problem. You bought it with the intention of building a house. Therefore, you could ask and possibly receive a variance based on that because they caused the problem. Okay, you got to make that really clear. You know, it's not like they're just giving these things away. You have to have a reason why. 
The other one is called the conditional use permit, and a conditional use permit means that you can use the property based on the fact that you agree to a certain kind of a condition. So let me give you an example here. Let's see if we can read this and see what this is. It says, a conditional use permit is an exception to the current zoning for the public welfare or benefit. Variances, on the other hand, are for a hardship. Um, Okay, it doesn't really tell you, so I'll just have to tell you. Conditional use permit would be, for example, you may very well, as an example, you may very well have a property that you're going to use. I think we were uh, talking about this the other day. You're going to use for a beauty salon to do hair, barbering. And according to the current zoning regulations, you have to have a parking space for every person that comes into your shop. And you say, okay, well, I happen to have four chairs in the shop. There's four beauticians working in my shop at one time. And But the problem is I only have space, parking space, for three. So what they may very well do is say to you, well, we cannot give you a permit to have this beauty shop, okay, where it is now, unless you agree to this condition. You agree to the fact that you will lease additional parking from the owner across the street. So now you're going to have enough parking for that additional additional chair where people will come in and get their hair cut. Now, if you don't have that available and you have uh, your shop has four chairs, you may end up having to say, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to take one of those chairs out. Okay? So the condition is like you can use it based on you follow this condition. Okay? Uh, hopefully that's pretty clear. Okay. Going from there, I'm just taking a look at what else we may want to uh, go over. The last thing that they talk about in here that I think, not the last thing, but one of the other things that I wanted to mention before I maybe had a second to show you, um, let me see here. They talk about something called uh, fair housing laws, Okay. Fair housing laws. And the whole purpose of the fair housing laws is to make sure that everybody is treated the same, regardless of race, creed, color, national origin, economic background, whatever, that we are all treated the same. Now, what they do here is they give you an example of some of the things that you may very well see that the fair housing laws are trying to prevent. One of them happens to be something called redlining. And redlining is, what's happening is, is redlining is where, if you will, years ago they used to take a certain geographical area. And the bank maybe had this map in the back. And they drew a line around a geographical area and said, we will lend out here in this area, but never in this area. And the reason why we're not going to lend in that area is because the people in that area, it's a high crime area or, uh, you know, there's a large grouping of black people that live there or Puerto Rican people that live there or whatever. There was a reason they would say, no, we were going to discriminate. And they did that. Okay. And what the, what the laws said is said, you can't do that. You cannot draw a line around that area and say, no, you're not going to lend in that area. You can't do that. You could go in there and say, for example, maybe I'm not going to give somebody a loan because they financially can't qualify, or maybe I'm not going to make the loan because it doesn't appraise right, but I'm not going to make a, a determination just based on people's background. 
So the law was passed as you can't do that. In fact, most of the government, if not all the government, not government, but the banking institutions have to also report on how well they service the community that they're in. The second thing is something called steering. Steering was something where you would take and, uh, t- you know, somebody would come to the door, they would be of a certain ethnic background, and you would not, you would say to them, okay, well, this person is black or they're Puerto Rican or they're Spanish, and we're not going to show them the white neighborhood. So what we were going to do is we're going to steer them over into this neighborhood. You can't do that anymore either. Okay, that was taken care of a long time ago. Protect people. Uh, next thing is, his owner tells the agent not to show the property. You can't do that. If, you know, if the agent is, as the agent is relieved of the duty to show the property to anyone, including minority who has requested to see the property, you can't turn around and just, you know, take a listing and have the, you know, where the owner tells you don't show it to these kind of people. You can't do that. It's all to, to take care, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, same thing with race. Any race restrictions, you can't do that. This is another one that I used to see at one time when I was a kid in New York. It's called panic or blockbusting. And this is interesting. Uh, I mean, I remember sitting in a living room one time and hearing this. It's where an agent intentionally incites existing homeowners to sell their properties by saying that the property values will fall because persons of a different race or religion have targeted to move into the neighborhood. Okay, that's another one. And I remember that. And what they would do is they would they would go around the neighborhood and they would say, you know what, the Puerto Rican people are moving in here. And people say, God, i got to get out of here. Let me sell my house. And that was happening. So that's to stop that kind of stuff from happening. So that's the purpose of those laws. Now, what I want to do with the remaining amount of time that I have is I want to take you out and show you a couple of the websites that I've put up here for further information for you guys. And I don't think these will change as often as some of the other ones will. Okay, websites. This is underneath this chapter, which is subdivision government control. First thing I want you to be aware of, I'm going to change the size of this text a little bit. Okay. Okay, we talk about the Sacramento, or we talk about the county and the community planning department. Okay, this is the department right here. Uh, they are located in downtown Sacramento. Uh, if you want to go in here and find, uh, you know, want, want to find out things about the uh, master plan, the general plan, zoning requirements, whatever it happens to be. In fact, in our internship class, we always have one of the planners from that area come in and speak so that you're familiar with what, you know, what can be. All you have to do is just if you have a question, you just go down there and you ask them a very nice people. Uh, they can walk you through, tell you, you know, what the property can be used for. Uh, if you don't know anything at all, you know, like if you need a building permit or don't, at least they can get you going in the right direction. If you're looking at wanting to rezone the property or split the property, you know, into, say, a couple different parcels or do a subdivision, this is where you start in Sacramento County. Uh, they also have some what they consider to be, I think they're frequently asked questions. And... Uh, I think some of these have been there for a long period of time, uh, just to give you an idea of what kinds of questions people typically will ask. First one do, uh, is, does a homeowner need a permit uh, for a fence? Okay, that's a common question that you may have. So in this case, they're giving you an answer. 
Okay. So in this case, the answer is no. A building permit is not needed if the height of the fence is six feet or less. Lower, um, uh, I'm sorry, if over six feet, a building permit is needed for, for the fence. Okay. Uh, next question. Can a person keep horses or livestock on residential property? Not usually. Okay. So they'll tell you what you can and can't do. It says, uh, but if the property is zoned for incidental agricultural and has a net area of 20,000 feet or more, horses or livestock may be kept on or um, may be kept for your personal use, meaning you can't run a boarding, uh, boarding surface there for horses. Um, another question that some people will ask is, can I have chickens on the property? Uh, the property must be zoned for incidental agriculture use and have a net area of 10,000 square feet. Okay, But the point is, is there's a lot of frequently asked questions there to give you an idea at least of what they would basically have available or could help you with. Now I'm going to go back to the next site that you may run into, which is the California Department of Real Estate subdivision webpage, because we talk about that subdivision, uh, Subdivided Lands Act. This is subdivision, so if you're interested later on in the future and want to know about things such as public reports, I'll see if I can make this a little bit larger here, make it larger. Uh, public reports, uh, you know, you want to know what that public report process is that they talk about in the book. Remember, the California Department of Real Estate is the one that prepares that. Any question and answers you may have, we talked about common interest developments. That's all located here. Uh, subdivision industry bulletin, um, all of that stuff for that you want to know about this particular act is located here. Things like, for example, operating and cost manuals for homeowners associations because that's associated with subdivisions. That's listed here. And again, these are all PDF documents. If you click on them and open them up, I believe that they'll open up as an Adobe Acrobat PDF so you can open it up and, if you will, do your research right uh, right here online, or at least get started with it. So it's Operating Cost Manual for Homeowners Association. So they have all those manuals right there for your use. Okay, so that takes care of that one. The next thing that I wanted to show you was the California Geological Survey website. This is the one from your book. This is talking about, um, this is where we have the maps, uh, this is talking about things such as earthquakes, earthquake strong motion, environmental and forest protection, faults, uh, you know, earthquake faults. Uh, basically, all you have to do is click on the, the link and it'll take you to that where the faults are located. Okay, so you can go and look up all of this kind of information on here. And, and so you have a better understanding of how it actually, you know, It'll tell you, like, for example, if you want to know what is an earthquake fault zone, I'll just kind of read this. It tells you an earthquake fault zones are regulatory zones around active faults. The zones are defined by turning points connected by straight lines. Most of the turning points are identified by roads, uh, dra drainages, and other features on the ground. Earthquake uh, fault zones are Plotted on a topographical map, which means it's showing the great, you know, the by color it's showing the height of the different areas. 
At scale of one inch equals 2,000 feet, the zone vary in width, but average around one quarter of a mile wide. So it, it, in other words, what I want you to do is just know that they're talking about, here's a nice little picture of, uh, of the uh, rupture of an earthquake going through here. You can see that. Um, so everything in here, if you're looking for anything about earthquakes and information and places to contact, that's all located right here. All right, so we've got that one taken care of. Okay, next one is the Sacramento Planning Commission. Okay, this is the Sacramento, uh, the County Planning Commission, Planning Commission. I'm going to go ahead and change the uh, size of the text a little bit here on this one. All right, if you want to know who the Board of Supervisors are, these are the people that are elected by district, the five districts, uh, that are the Board of Supervisors that are responsible for running the day-to-day -day or running the county or setting the, not running, but setting the general direction of the county. They cover certain geographical areas, and they represent those people that live in that part of the county. So, for example, uh, you have, you have uh, just pick any one of these people here, like uh, this one right here. It tells you about his district. Uh, the first district occupies the north western corner of Sacramento County and is the home of a number of thriving communities from rural Alberta to residential North Highland. So it tells you where it is that he is actually responsible for. Okay, so we have each one of these areas and we can find out about who these people happen to be, what they're responsible for, how to contact them, so on and so forth. That's all located right here. Uh, if you want to know, those are the board members. If you want to know what the board's functions are, this tells you what their job is, what they're responsible for doing. Uh, this also tells you about meeting information. So when you have meetings, this is the public meetings that you can go to and say, I'm not happy with the fact that you're rezoning the property or you're putting the subdivision in or you're you know, you're building this apartment house here or whatever. You can go there and listen to the complaints and voice your complaints. That's why sometimes on TV they'll have some issue that everybody has a complaint against. And you'll see the TV stations like KCRA or, or one of those down there, and you'll see the, all the neighbors standing in there yelling at these people, saying, you guys are not paying attention to what we're, we want. Okay, these are the public meetings. This is where you can go and do your complaining. Um, see what else we have in here. Okay, I think that there's just a lot of information in here if you ever want to know about how that works. And again, that's for the county because you may be very well located in a city. Uh, we go down here. This is, I think I have the Sacramento City Planning Committee. No, I guess I don't. I guess that's not linked anymore. So anyway, um, Pretty much, I, I covered most of, you know, everything that's in here. I think uh, subdivisions and government control is a really important topic. It's something that if you are selling, uh, if you're selling individual residential resale homes, you may find out that you're really not that involved in, um, if you will, in things like subdivisions and zoning. You know, you just go in and say, this already is a subdivision. It's already zoned for this use. We're not converting anything. We're not changing anything, so we don't necessarily have to worry about it. 
where you may find yourself as an agent or as a, as a, as a consumer involved is that you may very well have property that you decide that you want to change. In other words, for example, you may own a piece of property or two pieces of property that has a line you know, that's split down the middle. You may very well want to go down there and, for example, have that property line moved one way or another, make it smaller or larger. You may have something where you have a piece of land and you may say, and this is not uncommon for people to do, and say, I'm going to buy that 10 acres of property and I know it can be split into five-acre parcels, and I'm going to go ahead and have it split. So the question is, is, well, where do you start? Where do you go to? Who do you talk to? It's the planning department. Uh, you may very well also find yourself in a situation where a client may be looking to buy property or looking to sell property, and they're telling you that it's zoned for commercial. That's one thing I kind of want to caution you about. When you see people that tell you that the property can be used for certain things, like if they tell you it can be used for apartment houses or it can be used for commercial or industrial use, remember that what they are probably telling you is that what they're really saying is if I meet all of the conditions that the county or the city are going to require me to do, then and only then can I use it for that use. For example, it would not be uncommon for them to turn around and maybe if you're going to build a... Uh, like an automotive repair facility, a garage, it may already be zoned for that, but you may very well find out that the fire department will turn around and say, you know what, you're far enough away from the, from the fire station that we need to have you pay for and put in a fire hydrant, okay? Or we need to have you change the road in front of your property, <laughs> okay? Or when you build that property, you're, you're, you know, your building is only going to be allowed to be that so much size because of your setbacks, Okay. Or maybe even if you can build the building, maybe you can't get the business license for that area because it's within a certain – for example, there's certain businesses that cannot be located uh, very close to like churches. So if you're going to open up a, a, a grocery store that's going to say, sell, say, alcoholic beverages, you may not be able to locate it there because it's going to be too, located too close to the school or too close to the church. So the point is, is that you do want to make sure that you're aware of this and cognizant of what's going on, that you may be very well asked to help your clients find out more information about this. I would recommend that if you do, start with the planning departments. You know, find out, just find out from the addresses, am I in the city or am I in the county? Uh, the lady that came in this past week to our internship class and spoke and said the easiest way to find that out is get a Thomas Brothers book. Just look at a Thomas Brothers map, and it'll tell you if it's in the county or the city. So with that, I think we're pretty much done with this uh, topic. And uh, the next time we'll pick, be picking up with, uh, we don't have that much more to go, and we'll be picking up with a new subject. With that, thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you back here the next time. Bye-bye.